Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from an above-ground basement in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, a journalist and author whose most recent book shines a light on both the triumphs and the seedy underbelly of an industry very near and dear to my heart entitled The Secret Life of Groceries, The Dark Miracle of the American Supermarket. Hello and welcome, Benjamin Moore. Hey, so nice to be here. Thank you for I have been so excited. I talk to people about books that are about, um, no offense, uh, issues that kind of matter in the world. And I'm like, when do, when can I get through these so I can talk to the guy about Trader Joe's? I'm so happy you're here. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> groceries matter. I think that was, that was like a, one of the like reasons, sneaky reasons I wanted to write the book because I feel like they're like part of this fabric of society that we've basically written off as like a chore despite the fact that it's like staggeringly significant in the you know, history, human history that we have these options at our fingertips. Uh, and I like that, like the dichotomy between like being able to completely ignore them and take them for granted. And the fact that they're this like miraculous source of abundance and choice that has never been seen <laughs> in the history of humanity. To me, that's exactly the toggle point. So when did you first realize that you like, cause we all go grocery shopping. And at a certain point, I think, I don't know if you're in a relationship, like my wife hasn't seen the inside of a grocery store in like 10 years. Cause at a certain point we realize she considers it a chore. And for me, it's like supermarket sweep, except they actually have to pay for this stuff. So when did you first realize like you like grocery shopping, you like groceries. And then when did you realize that you were so interested in them? You might want to write a book about them. Yeah, no, that's good. I, uh, I'm with, you i'm on the team of like i go into a grocery store and i'm relaxed i like scan the aisles if i was like self-soothing yeah you know no vacation (laughs) yeah and and like i'll check out the gross let's check out a grocery store in paris let's check out a grocery store in nairobi like what's what's up here it's that to me is like travel um bliss but uh i know that that makes both of us probably oddballs uh so the book happened in a few ways. One, I've always carried that with me. And I had this kind of definitional experience that was in the book where I, I spent some time as a researcher in the Kenyan rainforest, uh, living in a small hut on the edge of the you know rainforest, no electricity, no running water. No, this was pre-email. So or it wasn't pre-email, but it was pre-email on phones and like widespread email. And uh, I came back from that trip uh, having like lived with the rhythms of the rainforest and kind of washed my clothes <laughs> based on rainwater and uh, walked into a New York City grocery store and was just like concussed by the abundance, which I think is something that's a, it's that's almost like a trope, you know, like the veteran returning from war. You've seen that scene before, um, but it was really visceral for me. I, I was I was like 22 at the time and I was like, holy shit, this is America in a way I've never seen it. And there's like a birthright of mine that I've taken completely for granted that like just this staggering just the colors and the food options. And it was, that was probably the primary seeds of this book, but that was 20 years ago. Uh, and it's kind of like sparked my love of grocery stores. Uh, but there's like a real, you know, so I wrote a book before this on Bikram yoga. Um, it kind of broke that story of uh, Bikram being a sexual predator. Uh, and in the middle of that, to learn all about that world, I was doing gobs of yoga and I went to these, yoga trainings uh, and one of them we were like trapped in a hotel with Bikram the, the yoga guru and they would let us out to do, go grocery shopping like every week or so and I went with a group of these yogis to a Trader Joe's and, and 
it was like going to Disney World with these, like I'd never seen adults so happy and like frolicking. And I didn't grow up with Trader Joe's. I, to me, like I, I didn't quite understand what was going on, but I was like, oh, there's something significant here. Like something has shifted in my lifetime between grocery as chore and grocery as like this identity marker. There was a grown adults who are like, running up and down the aisles like they were in an amusement park and so that was the very like i was like okay i'm kind of wrapping this book up i understand where this story is going but this is gonna be my next topic like i want to understand what the fuck happened to the grocery world you're right you're absolutely right i don't know how much this is a real widespread thing across america and canada but you're telling people when in los angeles or in new york when you say you know i was at whole foods the other day you're saying a lot about yourself and 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 if in if you're at Ralph's it's like uh it's like saying you still read the daily news even though you're you're smart and you're educated enough to read the New York Times and then Trader Joe's sort of you're sort of saying that you're you're uh, smarter than the people who have better taste than the people who go to Ralph's, but you're smarter than the people and less superficial than the people who go to Whole Foods. You're right. This is are, this reminded me of a documentary that I saw, um, which for some reason keeps coming up over and over on this show about the dawn of um, advertising. And it's tied to the birth of capitalism as we really know it, where you go from um, selling things based on need. Hey, your feet are cold. Buy some socks to why would you wear those pants? They make you look like a hick. Don't you need, don't you need, uh, these yeah. pants? You're, you're nobody. If you're not buying so-and-so pants, like you say in the book, the average store has a grocery store in America has 32,000 SKUs is what I would say. Right. That's barcodes. Stock keeping units. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Each one of those, there's not 32,000 things to eat. There's 32 different niches or, or on the on the part of the the manufacturer, they're hoping there that there are thirty two different needs that people need need to have scratched. Some might be you need salt to make food, but some it, it may be way more about what that person wants to think about themselves as a person. Is that about yeah. right? Well, yeah. I mean, I think it's really interesting, and I, and I get into some of this in the book with like. Really, I, I spent some time with a retail architect who was based out in LA, a uh, fascinating guy, Kevin Kelly, who who like designs supermarkets and he um is responsible for like the in-store experience of supermarkets. And I think I walked into that section thinking like, oh, this guy's gonna be like some shady, manipulative person. Um, you know, he talks about like creating retail bliss points, physical bliss points where you will like walk in the store and be like energized as a consumer and want to like buy. So, I, you know, I had kind of walked in with these tropes that these supermarkets, a manipulative place, they keep the milk in the back of the store so that you have to go through it. They tire you out through decision fatigue. I don't know. I read all this stuff and and I think that that's one narrative. It's like completely the opposite of the way this guy approaches um, his work, which is really about like tapping into people's identity and feeding that back to them and creating environments where they feel recognized, where their unconscious needs are being met. It's all about like giving to you and creating an environment that's a fit, which also makes these places polarizing because there are places you walk into and they're not a fit for you. And so you get people who are like Trader Joe's, like, Ugh, like that gives me the wrong place. That's all pretentious. It's like too twee. It's too, you know, it's whatever. It's not me. And that's because the Trader Joe's in particular, although all of the, the, the trains do it down to the most bare bones like Aldi, um, they're, they're projecting a different thing, but they really demographically target they have, and they build an environment for that person. And yeah. it's interesting in the when you talk, talk about like the history of advertising and capitalism, it's like it used to be that we had lots of ways of of being conspicuous consumers and like the Veblen purchases. And you would if you wanted to flaunt your wealth, you would buy a Rolex or you would dress in a certain fancy way. And that type of consumption has become stigmatized. And what food presents as this like kind of perfect vehicle for that type of consumptive instinct, right? You can, you have to do it. You're forced into it, whether you're rich or poor. It It's ephemeral. It disappears after you've eaten it. You, you Three times a day, you're, you're forced to it, but you can put all this weight of like, oh, 
I have like special colon biota that has to be like, I'm a unique individual, my whole family history, like, oh, I'm a Scottish, Irish, Jewish, but you know, like that's presents in food. Um, and then of course you layer on top of that, like kind of knowledge, you know, the right type of thing to buy that, it, that explains that you, you know, you understand Alison Roman and um, you read the right foodie blogs and there's like this wealth of knowledge that can be expressed through food. And it, it's really this perfect consumptive vehicle. And the grocery store carries a lot of that. Yeah, you're um, right. You're going to buy flax seeds is really humble bragging. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. I've, I've never used the adjective twee outside of the music sphere, I don't think. But Trader Joe's is so incredibly twee. I will never see that store again the same way. <laughs> of you having said. And, and uh, uh, you you met Trader Joe, okay, a series of shocks for me. Trader Joe is a guy that actually exists, and he's alive, and you Ooh. were, and oh, or was, and and you were. R.I.P. Trader Joe. R.I.P. Yeah, Trader Joe. I'm not. I, I have. I have mixed feelings about about Trader Joe's, and particularly the cult of Trader Joe's. People need to calm down a little bit about it, but it's a remarkable thing that he made and that continues to exist, even though he sold it off a long time ago. So he was a real guy. His name's actually Joe. You spent some time with him, and he seems at least as interesting, if not more interesting in person than your wildest fantasy might project. That's right. Awesome. I, so Trader Joe's was, like I said, with that, that Bikram story, it was kind of my launching point. I walked in there. I too am not a member of the cult of Trader Joe's. Like, sorry, sorry guys. I was like, why are these people so happy? The prices here are legitimately lower than other places. It all seems like it has this halo of good health. Like, what's going on like there's something rotten in the kingdom of trader joe's and, and that was that was the energizing energy i went into this with was like okay let's get behind the trader joe's in the same way i got behind bikram yoga and see what's there and then i meet joe who joe kalum who is the founder of trader joe's um and i was lucky to spend time with him um for the book and really he is one of the more wholesome and brilliant, really brilliant guys. And there's a whole host of reasons why Trader Joe's is the, the way it is. It is not entirely positive. I think the book is like a very warts and all uh, approach to the grocery industry um, in general and Trader Joe's in particular. But I was utter, I was completely charmed by him. He, he has one of these brains that you instantly recognize, I don't know, you're around these people whose sense of perception of you feels like you're kind of standing naked in front of them. They're, the memory, like I, I interviewed a lot of early Trader Joe's employees about them, about him, um, as well as, as interviewing him. And they would talk about him in these like godlike terms. They'd be like, he could add numbers up before we could even like glance through them. He could speed read 1200 words a minute. And, you, you know, he had memorized all the legal codes and he has a photographic memory. And, you know, it, it, we, I would like, these are like C-suite dullards, like the kind like stuffy guys. And they would talk about him with like, wide open eyes uh, and I remember one guy saying like I was giddy to wake up every morning because I just wanted to hear what Joe had to say uh, <laughs> it's fitting and, and it it's, really it's, 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 it's such a culty uh, it's such a culty store and there literally is a cult a cult figure yeah. at the top of it it's perfect and there's a guru behind it yeah. and, but what he did was pretty interesting I mean so he founded Trader Joe's back in the mid 60s based on a, a chain that he had founded in the late 50s a Pronto's Pronto market. And he really did use his outsized intelligence to kind of see around corners. In, in the mid 60s, he kind of identifies that the GI Bill is going to hit a third wave of returning veterans, right? So after World War One, Korea, and now Vietnam, which is not escalated at this point, but he sees it escalating and he sees waves of veterans coming back. Sure. And he understands that when the GI Bill allows them to get college educated and that when you go to college, he, he thinks you're going to want to eat differently because you're going to expand your vocabulary and you're going to want to flex your vocabulary. And he wanted to make a grocery store that served this type of person. It was like an un, overeducated, underpaid, um, you know, Volvo driving professor. Was this? This was in his mind in 1965, 1966. Um, and then, you know, he, he he decides that Boeing with the 747 is going to make travel to Europe cheap and accessible and demographic uh, de uh, democratic. And so suddenly, people are going to be coming back and want to taste food like cheeses that they hadn't really 
taste before. So he starts stocking this up. Um, these kind of like wonderfully associative leaps that, you know, nobody was thinking about at the time. Uh, and it was it was really a pleasure to kind of get behind the hood. So it, it spoiled my idea of writing this like Trader Joe's expose takedown. But yeah. uh, but it was but he taught me more about the grocery industry than just about anyone else. Yeah, I mean, I, I went into this assuming that I, I wasn't sure if I should read this book because none of us, you know, we're all we're all grownups here. If you're listening to a podcast about groceries, you're definitely not a child. You know, I, I'm not surprised to find out that all is not what it seems at my local Ralph's, you know, that fish didn't show up on little parsley leaves or or, or whatever. But I, I legitimately felt that I might read some things in this book that I couldn't unread, that I couldn't unknow. And it's a bit of that. It is about the dark miracle of the supermarket, but it, it it's it's a love letter in in a lot of ways at the same at the same time to just the fantastic achievement that we do all that we do all take for granted. Now, one thing I want to ask you about Trader Joe himself, you mentioned that he kept he had this amazing um, aptitude for synthesizing disparate pieces of information into sort of a unified theory that maybe only totally made sense to himself, but he he did record all these things. This was written down. It seems to me the gospel of life, according to Trader Joe, would be an instant bestseller. Is that stuff ever coming out? Yeah, yeah, actually. So he has a ton of theory papers uh -huh. that he wrote his stuff down, and, and that... I don't know whether that will see the lighter day or where where that is. I got my hands on that through old employees who shared it with me. Um, but he had an unpublished memoir at the time that I was researching the book, and I it's I think it's in the process of being published or is it's just been published. And I think uh, it's you know I think it'll be it'll be I think someone will clean it up and it'll be it'll be a lovely read. I mean he, he he's a he's an engaging. You know, and obviously, with his emphasis on vocab, uh, a charming writer as well. But I, I will say, I don't want this to sound like this is a love letter to Trader Joe's. Like I, I, um, I have a lot of appreciation for for Joe and for the chain. But truly, the the book gets into some really dark places, and I mm -hmm. don't think Trader Joe's is anywhere different than than the average grocery store. I mean, the things that beset grocery as an industry. Um, individual chains really don't have much control over. They're all playing in the same hyper-competitive place and, and the same problems that develop, um, it, you know, Trader Joe's and Whole Foods aren't exempt from like the miseries uh, of the grocery industry, which is, which is largely the miseries of a hyper-competitive world and outsourcing and the race to the bottom that that engenders. Um, but you see that up close, it gets ugly. Sure. So let's let's talk about the dark side of the miracle of the American supermarket. Race to the bottom is a phrase I've heard you use before, particularly in regard to uh, to wages, to labor. How yeah. how is that endemic to seemingly inextricable from groceries and the grocery business? Yeah. So one thing. So what's interesting about grocery is that it's kind of built on good intentions in a way I had this dot when I walked into this book, I was like food culture had this like, and foodies kind of snobby foodies had this like paradigm for how the world worked, which was like, there's like evil corporate ag and, and global food companies are Monsanto. greedy, faceless, yeah. um, right. These corporations that are just greedy, faceless and, and serving you up like, slop at the same time like nutrient light food um and taking advantage of you and like that's just not true of the grocery industry which is a hyper competitive um you know low margin the whole story of groceries and, and you know the history of groceries the big innovations and in groceries are all about how do we increase the volume of what we're selling and shrink the margins to get the lowest possible prices and that's why they've gotten bigger over time. That's why offerings get bigger. That's why choice gets more. Um, but the result is they're all looking over each other's shoulders and fighting for consumers like mad. Um, they're, they're, consumers are extremely picky. Even if you don't realize it as a consumer, you're constantly price comparing within like quadrants of value. Um, you're asking for extremely high quality and these stores are suffering to deliver it to you. And those forces get compounded on the people they buy from and the people those people buy from and it gets pushed down the chain 
um, with smaller and smaller margins. And, you know, the result is that people at the way bottom get really compressed by this. Um, and, and in America, we see that in like, like retail laborers. And, and there's been some stuff on that in the pandemic, not enough. Um, but overseas, I mean, it can get quite extreme. And, 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 and the book spends a lot of time in Thailand looking at wage slavery uh, and, and like actual human bondage in the Thai seafood industry, which is not a rarity. I mean, it is actually endemic to the bottom of the supply chain that you have like horrifically abusive conditions that go to create low prices um, that in the first world, we just kind of insulated ourselves from. Dumb question. When you say wage slavery, what do you literally mean? Well, wage, oh, sorry, wage slavery is probably uh, a, a miss. There's wage theft and there's like literal human bondage. So that was just probably me slipping my tongue. Um, but wage theft will can look take a variety of forms from people who are, you know, paid. And then there's so many deductions out of their paycheck for their housing. For you know, I uh, spoke to somebody in Thailand who's who is living on company uh, uh, like kind of barracks on the company grounds. Their paycheck was being deducted for that. The electricity for those barracks was like being taken out of their paycheck. Um, you know, just endless lists of like small things that that reduce their check to nothing, or sometimes in the negative, and then you're in an essentially static place uh, in terms of mobility. Uh, that's even different than bondage. I mean, when I, I also spoke to people who were actually bought out of prison and sold onto boats, um, you know, uh, old fashioned, there's no real other word for it than slavery. Um, and, you know, they were watched people get beaten to work and get had their friends get shot and, and pushed off the boats in front of them and just about the most horrific working conditions that you can imagine and the ones that you would think would be extinguished in the year 2022 i see i see so yeah so the, the wage side that's the 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 jodes the grapes of wrath the i own my soul to the company yeah. store kind of thing yeah and that's the and that unfortunately is the lighter side of what you're talking about now you are uh a big part of your style, which I think is clear to everybody by now, even if they haven't read your stuff, is um, a hands-on approach to the things that you're writing about. I'm curious, are, are you a Orwell guy by any chance? Sure, yeah. sure. Because I got a little bit of a down and out in London and Paris vibe to uh, to driving around eating blushing. beef. I'm blushing. Eating a beef jerky, <laughs> beef jerky with, a, with a trucker. So let's talk about some of these jobs that you took on uh you're not just this fancy lad sitting there in brooklyn writing about these things that you read about on the internet you well you you, you worked at whole Foods. no i am i am a fancy <laughs> lad in brooklyn writing about things on the internet um but i also feel like there's something compelling about getting out there and Hell seeing yeah. it for yourself and i would say truly it is at the service of the pros not i don't think that these experiences give me any special vantage point like I, you know, I went to Thailand. I'm talking to like enslaved workers and tracking down labor brokers who are the, the guys who are buying them. I don't, I can't identify with these people. I really, I mean, I really can't. But what I can do is then tell their story. Yeah, in that's a, plenty. A far more granular manner. Um, I can use details that just aren't of like people. Pe so other writers sometimes buy probably use these details, but they don't haven't. You know, I, I guess I've gone there and I can feel comfortable about using those details in a way that I wouldn't be able to if I didn't have that first person experience. Um, but yeah, for this book, yeah. it meant working in a Whole Foods um, on the seafood counter. Um, you know, I, I drove around the country with a trucker, um, which was extremely educational in terms, uh, you know, and it really like you know, uses a lot in truckers on the news now. And I feel like this book did a pretty good job of like, for anyone who read this book, it would not be confused as to what's going on um with the, with truckers right now how do you mean that uh, um you know what else did i do i followed i trailed this woman who had a small business uh selling like a combination coleslaw coleslaw salsa uh you know that there was she was trying to get on shelves so just to look at what it takes for an entrepreneur to do that but yeah i'm just getting as close to the people who are actually doing things so i can get a sense of what they're doing in, through their own eyes um, you were able to see with your own eyes the real face of factory farming for 
chicken oh. and pigs? I was, I was. I, uh, you know, that was, first of all, pretty selfish in that I just wanted to, do, I found so, <laughs> I wanted to do that so I could see Hell yeah. for myself. Um, but it was part of, you know, I, I really wanted to understand where the ethical claims on labels come from. Mm-hmm. I am a, you know, virtuous little Brooklyn lad. Uh, and I try to buy the best stuff because I feel like as like a well-educated white dude, I'm at the literal top of the food chain in some ways. And I think the least I can do is pay 29 more cents for like the organic pasta sauce um, rather than the conventional. But there's also a sense of like, well, what the fuck am I actually paying for? Like where, what's the difference here? Um, how much do these labels matter? And and there's so many of them now. There's rainforest friendly versus um, fair trade versus, you know, the Smithsonian as like migratory bird, like whatever. Anything you want, somebody is out there to try to tell you there's a product that will satisfy that need. And it goes to these identity um, markers that we were talking about earlier. Um, and so I went on this rabbit hole odyssey trying to like understand the auditing industry, which is the, the people behind those uh, labels and, and how the certifications are guaranteed. And there's, just, there's a ton, um, and I can't do justice to right now, of reasons why the auditing system is, is failed. It's a snapshot system. It doesn't actually talk to workers. It's, it's looking at uh, information that's old. There's you know, these are not surprise visits that manufacturers have weeks to plan. They can hire the very same auditors to like go through the, the process with them ahead of time to prepare for it. Um, it is woefully insu- insufficient. Um, but part of that, I, I found a group of vegans who would break into factory farms and they were there to rescue animals, but they allowed me to like tail along with them. So I could see what these look like with my own eyes. And at the time, my idea was like, oh, I could audit the auditors, but what came, you know, and, and get firsthand experience as to what like a swine farm looks like or a cageless chicken facility or a caged chicken facility. Um, and I did all those things, but what came clear was just how complicated modern agriculture is, how difficult it is to have any impression of things that are done on this size without huge expertise in it, um, which one puts me in my place, but two goes to the heart of the auditing problem, which is that these auditors um, ostensibly need to be experts in their, but but because there's, the industry has exploded and expanded so rapidly, um, often you have a real vacuum of expertise with the people who are actually doing that and certifying things. At the end of the day though, okay, so you know, you can, you can, decide to buy the most virtuous chicken possible. You might even raise them in your backyard if you have a little yard and, and, and that's the chicken that you live on. But if you decide that you need to know ethically for sure about your chickens and your pigs, you're cutting yourself off from, for most of us, 100% of restaurants where you live, 98% of restaurants. Did you see or catch wind of anything that made you feel like, I I can't eat a, a, a taco truck chicken taco after what I now know? No, you know, I really tried hard not to make the book that type of book. I understand. I, mean, look, I understand. A lot of people, and, and I'm just saying this as like a clause, like I guess a lot of people when I was writing it would be like, well, what am I going to learn that I can't eat anymore? Like, sure. uh, you're going to never let me eat shrimp again after I read that. And it's like, eh, there are people, I get a bunch of letters from, you know, after the book was published and there are people who are like, felt like that was the message of the book, but it really isn't Mm -hmm. like the message is like, just don't take this shit for granted. Like, uh, uh, or I'd like, like, here's a, here's the context for which this is happening. And also like the scale and the size uh, and your demands as a consumer, which this low price, high quality and abundant choice, like those three things don't fit together in a way that can be met. And so people are scrambling to meet your needs and they're doing it in ways that are pretty off-putting and, and, and pretty ugly. Um, and so, and, and there's really no easy ways out of it, um, you know, that I, that I could find. So just, just generally expanding people's awareness. I guess if that means, you know, 
you you come to the conclusion yourself that there are things that you you can't stomach um more power to you but i found that the choice like there and, and, I, and the book does a much better job of like getting into this than i than i can do right now but the options that we have as consumers are limited um you know boycotting a sector doesn't actually work to deliver the end goals that we want because the system is so good at rechanneling our good intentions and so good at, at shifting channels of supply but maintaining the same bad practices um that you could read my book and say i'm never going to order thai shrimp again and then ultimately be hurting Thai shrimp farmers who have worked really hard to reform their sector uh, and rewarding Indian uh, shrimpers who, because the low price has shifted over there and that's where industry has gone because the stigma is on Thailand, um, now are doing some of the worst practices of all. And you're the idea that you could sniff that out is ludicrous because right. the people at the store whose job it is to sniff it out don't have a clue. The NGOs on the ground who deal with migrant workers don't necessarily have a clue. The, the manufacturers themselves are often surprised. <laughs> like I, I talked to um, a fellow who would like stake out trucks going from going into manufacturing plants, follow them back. Uh, some of them were uh, a very shady supply, you know, from very shady brokers who are definitely using slave labor. And when he informed the manufacturer, the manufacturer had no idea. Um, and, and part of that's a lack of curiosity. And part of that is that we exist in a mind bogglingly big world where the appetites are huge. Um, so a, a expecting a kind of scrutiny in that type of size is it's beyond the human ability. The um, the category of fair trade seems like it ties yeah. into this. Can you talk a little bit about the, not that it's hogwash necessarily, but the challenges in delivering on the promise of what those two words on your chocolate or, or, or coffee canister, how, how difficult that really is? Yeah. I mean, it, it, the difficulty starts with the system that is set up. So the fair trade is, again, it's an audit-based system. Audits are, you know, they, they come to us from financial audits, uh, which is largely looking at paper, uh, going and visiting and looking through the company's records, looking at their pay stubs. Um, they are typically visits to these manufacturing plants that last 12 hours. Maybe they stretch to two days, 24 hours. Some of these plants have 20,000 employees. Um, on these visits, you're not allowed to talk to a single one of those employees. You're not vested with any sort of investigatory power. You're being paid, in fact, by the manufacturer because it's a, getting a certification from you is a precursor to them doing business with, with the global supplier. So sure. there's an insane incentive structure for the person paying, for you to deliver something pretty pleasing to the person you're paying. Also, you probably realize that the person who's paying you and running this plant has a lot more expertise in their plant than you do, um, uh, just based on the size and the scale. Um, and it's all prearranged in the sense that it, there's a date marked on the calendar when you're coming. Uh, and you know, if you go to China, you can purchase software that will allow you to replicate like false books very easily. Um, it's cheaper to reform a. Uh, I mean, sorry, it's it's far more expensive to reform a plant than it is to just like bribe an auditor with like who's, who's getting paid kind of relatively small amounts to do this visit. So the whole system is ri riddled with problems. And in fair trade, all of those problems are amplified by the fact that there's really nothing physical. What you're looking for is abuse that might have happened like six months ago. So I, on a one time visit to a country that you don't speak the language to, uh, you're not allowed to talk to the employees. You're supposed to figure out whether their wages were withheld six months ago. And potentially you're visiting a manufacturing plant that's like processing the cocoa beans. And so the farmers who actually hand harvest or whatever garbage is on the bar about the, the, the chocolate beans, they're not even there. And you might be contractually prevented from going to the farm to do that part of the audit because 
whoever is paying for you like Nestle or, or some like very crunchy looking, you know, wrapped in brown paper brand, um, much more smaller independent might say, we, we are not paying for you to go to the farm. We're paying for you to go to the manufacturer. And that's where this audit starts and stops. So the limitations are just pretty clear. There are people working in the sector to solve these problems and there are good actors and bad actors, but I think that's actually a fair assessment of the, the, like that's like the 10,000 foot view of the fair trade uh, movement audit. Um, There are people who are working within that um, to figure out how to improve power workers so they can be the their own auditors right that that's very attractive who's who's the expert um in this situation and who who has a good knowledge of whether they're being abused like the workers themselves and so like places like the coalition of Imalaki workers and um worker owned supply chains um there there's there's hope in here but it, it's not the dominant paradigm right now i mean it might just be a pipe dream to think that we can <clears throat> effectively really regulate something that finally that's on the other side of the world. I mean, it seems the message I take from your book is if you really, really want something that's fair trade, buy it from somebody that that grew it or packaged yeah, it. Yeah, I think that that's part of it. I don't think it's a pipe dream. I think it'll take really creative solutions. It will take subverting. I mean, so in some ways, and I'm not like some raging anti-capitalist. In mm-hmm. fact, I think there's many things about this system that are amazing. And, and again, that's why it starts off with this love letter way. Um, but in many ways, the book became kind of a critique of capitalism. And I think in the current system where we're expecting low prices and it's premised on um, labor being one of the places that, you know, you have all these fixed costs when, sorry to, to back up, you have all these fixed costs when you're meeting the global market. Like you have to, for shrimp or coffee, you, ha- you have to get the right type of beans. You have to have them processed at the right temperature with the right equipment. And all these are fixed costs. Uh, the one thing that's under your control is what you pay your employees and, and then, you know, people you outsource to what they pay their employees. And so that's the place where prices get cut. And, um, you know, I think there are are hopeful models, again, where like workers own their own um, operators collectives um, that could solve this. I think there are models where workers are empowered to um, check the supply chain themselves and, and figure out when things have gone awry. But let's be honest, uh, those are more expensive. They're, they're not going to get you the lowest price and they're not going to allow you to perform in a market where somebody else out there is like able to sell their products saying, yeah, we do the exact same things and they're just as good. <laughs> and yet they're not, um, which is the reality of, of multiple distributors. Based on what you know about the grocery industry, do you prioritize when you're uh say buying your produce getting organic um well there's the honest answer which is i don't i guess i don't prioritize it but i do do it i think there's still i want i think there's first of all organic is actually a a usda program so it's unlike almost every other certification on there it's it's government um run um, which is not to say it's perfect by any means, but it is slightly different than a lot of than than say fair trade claims or rainforest friendly or, or a lot of these others. Um, but I, I mean, so the honest answer is I do. The, the message that I wanted people to take from the book is like that's the wrong approach. Like changing this system through your purchasing decisions is not how we're going to achieve reform. There's something incredibly selfish about the idea that, and like it's, I grew up with this. So I say this as like selfish, full of self-critique, but like I'm going to buy something for myself that's going to make the world a better place. And like that whole vision of like voting with your dollars there's something that if you take a step back, it just becomes like kind of ridiculous. Like, oh, I'm going to make self-serving decisions for myself that are going to like help make the world a better place. And it's like, that's not how the world works. Like if we want to reform supply chains, it's not going to be because you buy the nicest products for yourself. It's because 
we're going to have some kind of collective enforcement. We're going to have trade treaties that that come with enforcement teeth. We're going to have, you know, unions that that are able to collectively bargain on behalf of people. There's going to be regulate regulatory reform, uh, right? There's going to be broad cultural action from actors who can do these things, not from like you know, Ben and Mike yeah, um, yeah, yeah. decide to get the most virtuous shit. But take the, take the altruistic angle out of it. I wasn't even honestly thinking about that. If yeah, I'm, yeah. if I'm, Hey, you and me are, you know, we're, we're trying to see who can live longer than the other one. Well, I'm just going to eat the organic non GMO celery and you'll perish far before I will, because you're eating that <laughs> Monsanto pesticide laden celery, you know, crap celery. That's 50 cents cheaper. Who's, who's right there. Who's the sucker. I mean, I'm not going to tell you who's right. I'll say I try to eat more conventionally grown food now than I did before the book. And I say try because like everything I've been trained as a consumer that like the organic stuff is healthier. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do also, I do believe in like organic as like a, a, a habitat restaurant, you know, like organic is far more than just like the food that you're eating it's it's how it's being produced and what that means for the fields that it comes from and i think that ecological approach to organic is actually really important um and i do i do want to support that on the other hand i think from just to answer your question of like who's going to die first yes like are you fucking kidding like that they, what those are not the things that are going to get us to die what before the other and i know there are people who do not agree with me there but i i guess um I, I very much soften my views on like what uh, convent quote unquote conventionally produced um, goods, how bad they are for you. And, and, and a lot of that came from looking at what small organic producers actually do on their farm and, and realizing that like size actually gives people a tremendous advantages in some ways in in quality control that if you're a poor struggling farmer like if you look at dairy industry some of the worst abuses come on the family run small dairy farms whereas these big evil quote unquote evil conventional farms they're able to like hire human resource department so that they can actually look after their employees they're able to like afford the 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 medication to keep their cows healthy they're able to they're they're not so beholden to the market that they're looking to cut corners at every page and so the idyllic family farm with the red barn that i want to love i'm like well truth be told like they may not be doing things better just because you're small doesn't make you virtuous um these stories all get just much more complicated when you look at them yeah i think that's true for organic versus conventional as well real life is messy and uh it's i think this we're never our national dialogue on anything is is, it's never going to improve until people learn that things can be counterintuitive and true and 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 that that goes well beyond the subject of your book how about gmos i don't care i'll eat gmos personally i mean i'm not a gmo fan because i feel like there's well one the whole genome like patenting and trademarking genomes i mean this is just me riffing by the way this is not like what the book is about i try to be very i'll get back to the book i um, promise no 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 no. i understand i understand but i just i try not to like opine on these things so like me as a consumer yeah i had to stick away stay away from gmos although i don't think i think they're kind of like climate change for the left in the sense of like i don't believe i'm gonna get cancer from eating gmos yep. like i think that's I don't believe the health scares. I do think that like being able to patent genetics and the seed um, ownerships of seeds and and the way that those technologies are used in a manipulative fashion, that's not exactly how I want to support things. But in terms of like GMO corn, like somehow mutating my, I don't know, that just strikes me as like garbage. Yep. Um, but that's my personal views. It's yeah. super attractive to people. Um, and grocery stores are really clued into it because they can see how much consumers really want it. Um, you are a a very very evocative writer, which suits this subject very well because you know you're you're talking about things that people that you are seeing and smelling and tasting that people are just going to get you know words on the page about. So uh, I, I feel like you would write really good music reviews. Like I felt like I could I, I felt <laughs> like I could smell that uh, that 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 fish section at the whole foods on bowery why did you choose why did you choose to open your book essentially there in the 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 seafood department of a whole foods 
Yeah. I don't know. Sometimes I worry that that was a bad opening because it is very evocative. It's, it's catchy. Yeah. People who haven't read the book, basically I start um, with my experiences uh, uh, working at the retail counter um, and the, the fish counter in particular, where over the course uh, the, the fish counter at the whole foods I was working at was cleaned pretty irregularly. Mm. Uh, and so by the end, it would maybe get every other month or maybe once a month that we would clean off the ice um, and go down and like kind of take the real heavy duty industrial cleaning products to the case itself. And by that time, there was just a gutter of disgusting seafood waste that had kind of fallen through the cracks of the ice and accumulated down there and started to rot. Uh, And yet the buffer of the ice that we would pile on top of it um, really quieted down all of those smells. And and the the retail surface was a Whole Foods retail surface. It was beautiful. It was exquisitely designed. um, You know, the, 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 me and my fellow employees would go out of our way to like make these seafood cases beautiful with garnishes and trills of red peppers. And it was a beautiful case. And I, there was something about that difference between what you were looking at as a consumer and then the reality underneath that struck me as basically the heart of the grocery story, which is that, you know, you walk into these places and they're these absolutely surreal, colorful, beautiful temples of abundance that the greatest kings and emperors didn't have these options at their fingertips. And yet when you start scratching the surface of that, there's some really ugly things that it takes to maintain that abundance. Um, And there's some rot at the bottom of the case and at the bottom of the grocery story. Two more questions. One, um, a quote, uh, you said food buyers that you spoke to in grocery stores um, would say stuff to the effect of stop focusing on taste in regard to items. That's a rookie mistake. Now, most of us would assume, sure, there's other factors. Nobody wants to eat food that looks horrible, but actually secretly tastes good because you'll never get to it. But rookie mistake to focus on the taste of the stuff at the food store. Why, <laughs> why is that true? There's a number of reasons why that's true. It was surprising to me too. Um, and it has a lot of consequences for like what food gets on the shelf. But the number one reason is you got to remember like a grocery buyer has someone looking over his shoulder and he has to turn a profit. And so at the end of the day, the most important thing for that grocery buyer is the, the gross margin um, number the, like how much margin are they getting on this sale? And so you could have the most delicious stuff in the world, but if there's something else, that's going to get them a slightly higher margin and going to sell better, um, volume wise, like, you know, he's, that's going to get his attention, um, more than anything. The, the other reason, it, you know, the other reason is like the food is a complicated technology, basically, at this point, Um, the co-packers who and manufacturers who make the food themselves um, are responsible for sourcing it. And so whatever delicious product you have, like has to be able to be replicated in this industrial scaled environment. And the factors that go into that are not necessarily ones that premise taste first, but your commodities have to be, have reliable price structure. So if you're like looking for line caught salmon in your salmon honey jerky, like, and that shit jumps, has a volatile price, like your product is never going to succeed in the eyes of a grocery buyer who's looking for a stable price that they can slot in the same part of the shelf. Um, And that's true for all the different qualities beyond um, just commodity prices, there needs to, your, your product needs to be able to be manufactured at industrial scale, which taste, um, is again, not at the forefront or not necessarily at the forefront. But finally, um, what I, and probably the most surprising thing for me as, as a consumer in the whole book was that grocery stores have just basically reinvented their model and no longer make most of their money off food. Um, or, or at least not exclusively off food. Uh, you know, I thought you go to the grocery store, they sell you a product, they take a small markup and that's what makes the grocery store tick. Um, no, it's actually the grocery store is simultaneously doing that, but also selling shelf space to 
these manufacturers and to the people who are producing food for um, for their product. And so if you're trying to get your product on the shelf, you have to pay to play. So you have to pay for it. And I'm not talking about end caps or like big advertisements, which I think we all know require some type of payment. I'm talking about inches on the shelf anywhere in the store. It's called like slotting fees or, or, or there's many different forms of it, of different types of trade spends. And those fees are often what really determines what goes on shelf. And of course, that has nothing to do with taste whatsoever. If you can pay lots of money, then that's taste sweetest of all to the grocery buyer. Um, you know, I, I hope lots of people who are listening to this will will read your book. It's been available for a while. It's still readily available at Amazon and everywhere else that people get books. But for um, for people who won't ever read this book, or for people who will, what is what? Yeah, I know. I don't know what's up with those guys. I, you know, there's no accounting for taste. Uh, what is one single takeaway that you would want people to to take from your your huge labor? And this guy, he went flew to the other side of the world and saw the, yeah. the dirty underbelly of the shrimping industry. What do you? What message do you come back with for us? Just don't take this system for granted. I think it is like truly a miraculous system uh and the the pain and suffering in it is real and the only thing that would be worse than that pain and suffering is the idea that we are completely complacent about it and completely take the grocery store for granted as just like our a given thing and when it in act, actuality it's this extraordinarily human extraordinary human achievement like building the pyramids and you know, I think I think the suffering costs don't make sense even within that calculus. But you can't even begin to critique the system and and go about fomenting change unless you start acknowledging what it does correctly. All right, I think this is the part where I say goodbye to you. And then, if this were Siskel and Ebert, you and I, the lights go down, and you and I would continue talking about the canned corn at Trader Joe's. <laughs> but canned corn is nuts, right? It's That's really funny. good. It's very, very good. I've tried all the uh, vintage dated, vintage dated canned corn. That was Joe was uh, essentially marketing canned corn like wine, um, and you know, just taking showing that any product almost like as a dare that any product no matter how banal could be turned into a unique kind of non-commodity good so you take the most boring product of all and he goes and finds this like and, and he markets it in a way it's like from this special field and this special corn variety and it's got a date on the can from when it was canned and then all of a sudden you start to believe and maybe it does taste better than regular canned corn I like it. I, I turned my nose up. I'm judging people harshly if they're still buying Del Monte canned corn. I don't care if it says sweet on the can. It's not as sweet as Trader Joe's. Thank you so much for your time and uh, for talking to us about your book, The Secret Life of Groceries, The Dark Miracle of the American Supermarket. Thanks again, Benjamin Lore. Thank you. It was a pleasure. 